Welcome to Pip Podcast number 31. Today we journey to the central Victorian countryside to visit Mara Rapani. Mara is a photographer, cook, grower and pip writer who is living the homesteader dream. In this podcast, she chats to Pip editor Robin Rosenfeld about the simple rituals of her daily life and her journey to the countryside. The perfect listen for those of us who dream of a home on the range. We hope you enjoy. Okay, today we're talking with Mara Ripani, and Mara is living the dream that a lot of us dream about. She's living in central Victoria. She owns a beautiful property. She grows most of her own fresh food and she runs courses and she has a homestay and spends her days gardening, cooking, preserving and more. So uh, she's also an amazing photographer and you can follow, um, yeah, looking at all the photos that you create, Mara. I, yeah, it just all looks beautiful and it seems like you're living a beautiful lifestyle. Um, so, yeah, how would you describe your life? your lifestyle like what's a typical day in the life look like for you a typical day at the moment um is very much about getting up first thing at about seven to let the chickens out i've recently placed all my poultry in where in the tomato patch so we grew hundreds of kilos of tomatoes again this year it's one of the crops that we most um that we're very successful at Mm. and really important crop for us so I've placed the poultry in in that area where we've grown um, that crop to clear up that area so my day starts with opening up the hatch and letting them out I've got 11 hens at the moment um, all heritage hens and then feeding them they're moving to some other poultry that we have. We've got these beautiful Hamburg chickens, which are separate to the main flock because I have two roosters who are both very competitive, so they need to be in two separate spaces. I feed them all with some fermented grain, which I've been doing for the last six months, and then I come into the kitchen to prepare for the school day with my girls. I have a volunteer at the moment, which is a staple and incredibly important person in my life. And then there's always something either to harvest, something to dry. We're doing some drying at the moment because we've cut back a lot of the mint and thyme. So we're drying a lot of herbs. It's um, collecting the eggs. At the moment, I'm removing a lot of the spent vegetables from the summer harvest, which would have been done normally about a month or two ago. But due to COVID, we haven't been able... I've been homeschooling, so I just have everything sort of behind, two months behind. Mm -hmm. But there's always, yeah, something to cook, something to make. I try and make as much as possible from scratch because just because I love it so much. So we made some pasta yesterday with spinach from the garden. We've been harvest. We were given actually um, kilos and kilos of medlars. So we've been processing them and they've been a bit of a challenge, I must say. We've been making, actually, we've had a lot of fruit in our freezer from the summer harvest. We have strawberries, boys and berries and raspberries. And cakes. We've been making lots of cakes because Alana loves baking. So um, Alana's your volunteer. Alana's from New Zealand. She's with me for two weeks and she loves baking. So we're making them, which is fantastic because our freezer is full of berries. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. 
So how self-sufficient are you? These days, how self-sufficient am I? I find it really hard to put a percentage on it. I have to also admit to now struggling with that word a little bit just because when I look at my life and I look at all we produce and we produce a lot, but when I look at how much we're also dependent on, it, it really, I, I become aware that that we've got a long way to go as a society to become mm. To, to really reach a higher level of self-sufficiency. But I produce all of my own garlic, all of my own tomatoes, which I make But I make about 200 bottles of posada a year. I then semi-dry some of them and bottle them in vinegar and oil, and I completely dry uh, some of them so that they can be used in things like um, a whole range of dishes as a dried uh, a condiment. I wear self-sufficient pumpkins, uh, potatoes. We will start being self-sufficient in asparagus as of this next coming summer. Mm-hmm. Self-sufficient in eggs. I now make all my own soap. Uh, self-sufficient in, in fruit. Oh, yes. So, and, and we'll become even more so. I mean, I harvested hundreds of kilos of strawberries last year, raspberries, mm-hmm currants we've got red white and black currants and but our orchard which is quite young will start producing cherries plums apricots nashi pears and then of course if i add all the foraging work i do then that explodes Mm. and is it also about kind of being self-sufficient as a community too so it's not necessarily that you're producing it all but you're able to um source those other items within your community yes i think part of this journey has been about deciding what to let go of and what to to do myself Mm -hmm. so cheese has always been something that i love very very much but i have a neighbor who makes amazing french picodon cheese Mm. Um, a part of me is thinking, I make labne, which is so easy to make. There's no way I can't make it. But then with something special like picodon, I, I, it's absolutely um, worth it for me to barter with my friend Rosie. And so, in fact, at the moment, I've been bartering fruit with her in exchange for her cheese and goat's manure. So we've got a wonderful partnership. Yeah. When I have tomatoes, I barter with my neighbour Tammy, who has the beautiful free-range pork. And... I have another neighbour who sells lamb once or twice a year, so I've been bartering with them or buying from them. And then with the beautiful Sue and David Holmgren, they have lots and lots of fajoas. For the last couple of years, I've been bartering fajoas in exchange for this year. It was strawberries, last year it was something else. So I I feel very, very wealthy because I live next to people who share these values. Mm. They could easily have ended up somewhere without perhaps... Yeah, I could have ended up somewhere where it just that wasn't going to happen with people really uncomfortable with bartering because bartering is a very different language and it requires a lot of trust in Mm. each other. Uh, And if you're someone who's always run a business and money is absolutely how you see value for what you do and you've worked in a very sort of conservative way, bartering, you're never going to be open to bartering. So... I feel really privileged to be in an area where that language is completely and utterly shared. And if anything, it's being taught to me as well. Like people are sort of igniting my interest in it more and more as they offer that as an option. Mm. So 
was that when you chose to move to where you live now, was that something that you took into account, the community and the people that were in that area already? Definitely. So I was here back in 1999. I somehow came across permaculture then and I don't remember how. What, what was that first time that I saw a book or a description of it? Somehow discovered that David and Sue were running a program down at Continental House, this fantastic, awesome building they have great memories of down at Hepburn Springs. I'll never forget Sue and David's homegrown tomatoes and homegrown mustard relish. And I went from there, from that experience, I learned more about Dalesford. I grew up in Ballarat, so I had a little bit of a relationship with, with Dalesford as a result of my proximity to Dalesford. But mm. it was movement that made me fall in love with the area including the landscape which is so beautiful I think in some ways I feel a little bit guilty about part of the reason why I find it beautiful I think because no what do I mean by that it's sort of it's got some of that um, it's got a lot of deciduous trees in the town center and then around the outskirts it has this beautiful eucalypt forest so I've got this combination of my European ancestry here in the landscape and then the broader Australia which is which has allowed me to live a really rich and full life here in a way that I'm not sure I I often wonder what my life would have been like back in Italy but so this yeah this place I already had it I knew about the permaculture movement and the permaculture community here I didn't I thought though it would be a very small community. I didn't know how how big the alternative movement was here and on I've discovered it's much bigger than I realized and which has meant that I feel even more you know that I was a little bit afraid that if if a community is too small it can become a little bit closed mind or a little bit all of a sudden you know everyone straight away and there's no new opportunities for relationships and experiences but it's actually a really big community mm. so going back to your you mentioned living in Italy so you moved from Italy when you were a child can you tell me about like maybe your early memories in Italy and how the Italian culture that you grew up in with your family has influenced how you live your life now Yes, it's been a huge influence. I I came out here when I was nine. I lived with my um, so my grandmother, Antonia, who was my dad's mum. She came to live with us. My mum was running a hairdressing business back in Italy. We had we lived in a three story building. We had the apartment at the top. We rented out the apartment in the middle. We rented out the ground floor apartment. And my mum ran a hairdressing business in a separate um, room as part of the ground floor apartment. My grandmother living with us meant there was always someone home cooking lunch. And the Italian culture is very focused on stopping and having lunch together. So I was being there for those initial nine years was enough for me to have experienced that enough to feel that when I came here and oh, not only when I came here that continued because my mum went from working as a full-time hairdresser and my grandmother cooking to her becoming to being uh, full-time at home we lived only like a five minute walk away from the primary school I was going to in Ballarat so when we moved to Australia my mum very much kept the tradition of making a hot lunch and us mm. coming home school, which I look back on and think I don't know if that would be allowed today I'd have to sign all these forms to be allowed 
Like, oh, my mum would have to come and pick me up, I imagine. But at the time, it was just literally no worries. And, oh, and the school was so supportive. I, they just completely accepted that we were being asked to go home and have lunch with my mum every day. Mm-hmm. So um, that, was a, that was a wonderful experience because it's interesting, it's interesting that things that shape your life, there are so many little things like even that experience. Had the school been, no way, you cannot do that, the effect, of that on me and my family would have been quite huge. It would have said this is not acceptable and this is not permissible and it might have meant that I couldn't quite indulge in my cultural norm and um, it might have been a little bit of a, a tipping point or, or a, a, something that might have meant that I didn't take, couldn't take pride as much in what I was doing because the school was seeing it as something that, well, no, none of the other children were doing it, so why, why should you home for lunch but anyway I was allowed to which meant that um, I could continue that practice and I could continue and I became so used to it that having lunch at home it's actually one of the hardest things I mean I think you're in a really privileged position the whole concept of having to take I mean leftovers are not so bad and often they're delicious but the whole microwave experience of having to go what I'm getting at is work having one of the hardest things about work was not being able to have a sit down proper hot lunch Mm. with other people Uh, very few workplaces celebrate the importance of of getting together and having lunch and having a good lunch and having lunch with others and having that time to talk often people are eating at their desks there's no lunch room there's no facilities for heating food that are that is beyond a microwave and I hope that changes. I would love to see that change in every workplace. And some places did change. I remember in Melbourne, one of the Sustainability Victoria just prepared this most deluxe lunchroom. And I thought, fantastic. I just want to work here. <laughs> Not a Sustainability Victoria, but this is a fantastic lunchroom, you know. <laughs> um, so I, I've forgotten your original question, but I, uh, my experience. The influence of your Italian heritage, I think was. Yeah, it's been, it's been a huge part of my life. I've been also so privileged and so lucky because imagine, you know, a lot of the Chinese migrants, even till today are not celebrated. Mm. Um, And like COVID happens again, even more so they end up with all this discrimination I've been so lucky. I come from Italy. I just happen to have been born there, not as a result of anything magical I did. Italy, even though it went through some horrendous things, even though it has the mafia, even though it went through World War II with Mussolini, does anyone think of that? They just think Italy, how beautiful, how wonderful, how gorgeous the food is. And thank you, fantastic. As a result of that, I get to, uh, the romanticised version of Italy is what I get to experience from other people. Uh, Thank you so much for that. I just wish that that beauty and those um, selective memories could be applied to all cultural groups. So you went from living um, in Ballarat and then you moved to Melbourne. How was that shift for you and what, what drew you to Melbourne? Oh, Melbourne, I love you. I want to tell Melbourne right now how much I love <laughs> Because Melbourne was actually home for me. Ballarat wasn't home. Ballarat isn't wasn't it it's it was sleeping where was Ballarat where are the people they're there but I don't know where they are they're hiding somewhere Mm. um streets full of people celebrating life riding their bicycles where are the community gardens I'm talking about Ballarat in the 80s not now because Ballarat is changing Melbourne on the other hand Melbourne 
and had a thriving, diverse community of so many cultures. I bought my first bicycle there when I was in my early 20s and through it discovered all of Melbourne and just had mm. the most beautiful experiences. The right bicycle culture in Melbourne is thriving and now exploding. As I think I've mentioned in the article in Pit Magazine that I came across this extraordinary place called Ceres. I mean, for me, life-changing. It, it mm. gave me all the language that I didn't have to articulate who I was and what I loved and valued. And... Um, I, that's funny. I, um, yeah, so discovering that place was amazing. I, I came across also a woman there who I really, to this day, always want to mention, May Award, who is this, ex, who had, who had the language that I needed. So she mm. was running these amazing festivals called the Return of the Sacred Kingfisher Festival and the Autumn Equinox Harvest Festival. That's it, yes. So, and the first festival, the Return of the Sacred Kingfisher, was really re-celebrating the fact that Ceres had been a tip site for many, many years and now was re-landscaped and re-vegetated to bring back some of the native animals in the area, one of which was the sacred kingfisher, which had disappeared because we'd replaced all the native trees with exotic trees. So he was a group of people not only revegetating the land, but creating these extraordinarily uh, the festivals with a lot of community participation to celebrate the, that um, majestic event, to give it meaning. I mean, in this a lot of religious festivals. It's very dominated by religious festivals, which would be something that I could never truly um, indulge in. But to have someone take that concept of something like a sagra, a sagra in Italy, actually, to, uh, so there's lots of religious festivals in Italy, but for me to have that kind of meaning and importance placed on something other than God and Jesus and put into ecology to, to celebrate ecology. Mm. That's what I relate to. That's what makes me excited. So Melbourne for me was series you know, to a large extent series. Yeah. And I mean, even the course I did, I had no idea at the time that there was such thing that the universities offered a course in environmental studies. I moved into a shared household in Carlton, met a girl called Tammy, and she told me what she was doing and it blew me away. She was doing a course on environmental policy at RMIT. <gasps> That's it. Immediately a <laughs> from biological sciences at La Trobe, straight across to RMIT, completed the course there, learned everything I loved and it set me on my path. And then from there, I worked for the Alternative Technology Association for a short period of time, which at the time shared a facility or shared the series site with Ceres. Mm. And lucky enough to get a job at Ceres and then stayed at Ceres for five years. And uh, But yes, that course was, was really set me on my path. It gave me permission not only to love ecology and environment from a passionate cultural perspective, but I could turn that into a career as well. Mm. I can't believe how lucky I am because also it's a generational thing. Had I been born 20 or 30 years earlier, would there have been a course like that? I don't think so. But what I, what that course was steeped in was exactly what I, I needed and wanted, which was a more broader view at how we develop policies and programs and behaviour change programs to bring about change, big global change. Mm. So what were some of the roles that you had, some of the jobs that you had related to that? 
So that first job was at the ATA doing promotions for the Alternative Technology Association, which, as you know, is has been working to promote renewable technologies for maybe 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. At Ceres, originally, I worked in administration. That was my first job. And then I was really lucky, uh, Ceres... Uh, secured a grant from Parks Victoria and it was a three-year position as a multicultural ecological events coordinator. Um, My role was to work uh, with multicultural groups and invite them to join series projects as a way of having initiating a discussion around environmental responsibility and awareness so and we did that through both the festivals and events so for example with the sacred kingfisher festival i worked with the sri lankan community i worked with the iraqi women's group i invited sbs italian radio to come on board and um, the vietnamese community in collingwood and who else was i working with an african group but i can't remember which one but we had about six different groups participating in the storytelling of the return of the sacred kingfisher Mm. and then for the autumn equinox harvest festival i worked with about seven groups who we had funding to pay them no that is not true we had funding to pay an artist to work with them to develop a shadow puppet performance that looked at their agricultural icons Mm. and practices and we worked with ian hunter to develop a an aboriginal story around that and so we had the indigenous perspective and then the iraqi perspective and sri lankan perspective of how they celebrated harvest and agriculture Mm. and what what did you learn from that like what were some of the um differences and some of the similarities in how different cultures celebrated their harvests Oh, there were so, so many similarities, um, really. I mean, food being a key one, fire being another one, dancing, singing, uh, using um, their harvest to create in, in, in our own cultural background or a sort of English cultural background, often a corn dolly would be produced with the corn husks and in, with other groups there would be particular urns or, or baskets created to celebrate the harvest that were given a prestigious role. Um, but a lot of, yeah, dancing and singing, that's to, to acknowledge the equinox and the changing of the season. Mm. So you were saying before about, you know, the Italian culture sort of being romanticised and other cultures not being quite celebrated in the same way. Why, why do you think that is? I think why is that? Um, I guess. And has it I, changed? Do you think that that's changing with over time? I don't know. I don't, not enough, I think. Uh, I think if you speak to someone who's, from I mean even with the Black Lives Matter stuff right now that I think that's saying no we're not celebrated anyone and I think if you talk to Asian Australians I don't think they possibly ever feel like they're celebrated Mm. it's interesting I mean it's what is it it's well to some extent it's just oh it's difficult territory this one but And, you know, China only opened its borders to the West 
relatively um, recently compared to Europe, which has been open for a very long time, most of Europe. So, so that's one factor that China has been quite closed off from wanting to share itself, um, or the, the Chinese government has. I'm not, I don't think the people probably feel that way at all. So, and then what happens, some sort of the history behind the gold fields. When you look at the gold fields history, how much the uh, Chinese were persecuted mm. for doing everybody else was doing it, but doing it slightly differently. I, I don't know enough of that history to really understand why, but it seems like just the English just were so felt that they were so superior mm. that anyone who was slightly different just was condemned. I mean, Italy then, I guess Italy has, with them, Italy's got all that culture that has infiltrated our history books as well mm -hmm. about the Roman culture and all of that. The big painters, um, which are all the painters that are exhibited in, in art galleries. It's very Eurocentric. You don't, yeah. Yeah. how often do we bring Chinese artists out? But the reasons are complicated and beyond this discussion here because of us and our Eurocentric ways, partly because of the Chinese situation. I mean, that's only one country. And then, of course, the Middle Eastern countries have copped it for all sorts of reasons, occasionally for for. for for things that they're responsible for and, and then, but in, in many other situations, I was living in Reservoir, Melbourne. That was where I bought my first house. And I had one neighbor who was Polish, who was completely anti-Islamic. And across the road, I had three neighbors who were all, um, who all shared a Muslim religion and, and she'd never spoken to them once um, and was very harsh against them, even though she hadn't met them and they were living a life that was exactly the same as the life she was living. Mm. So I don't know. It's complicated. It to work, but, <laughs> Probably. But, but what I do know is that I, I really was celebrated. Like I've never had anyone react to me. If, if I say I'm from Italy, there's always joy in the other. Mm. There's a yeah. feeling being celebrated and I'm aware of that and I cherish that and I'm appreciative of that and I don't take it for granted I'm also aware of the luck of that that that's a luck thing it's nothing yeah. to do with me per se a little bit but mostly not and it's like oh that's not fair that's yeah. not what if I had been born you know from a different cultural group what would my Australian experience have been like yeah probably quite different so from Melbourne, um, can you tell me about the, your story of meeting your partner and moving to the country and how that all kind of came about? Because I think there's a lot of people who dream of this. You know, they think, oh, yes, I'll meet someone and we'll go and live in the country and grow food. And, you know, it sounds like that is kind of has been your reality. Could you talk us through that story? Yes, and I'll tell you my yeah my story of how that happened for me, and that happened for me as an incremental process. I went from living in shared, and I, I have to take it right back. So help me out. But I went from shared households where I couldn't necessarily choose exactly how those shared households operated because of range of circumstances at the time, to eventually being able to evolve and shape my life so that by the time I was in my last shared household, I was getting really close already to living the life I loved. So even in urban Melbourne, uh, in my last household, I was living with my partner, Ralph, who joined me and my two close friends, Sam and Lise, and we 
very quickly set up a vegetable garden in the backyard, very quickly started revegetating the nature strip to the dismay of neighbours and very already buying um at the time actually i was privileged that i could buy everything from friends of the earth where everything is sold unpackaged and we would shop at the big market and so i was doing a lot of those things there and then ralph asked if we could live when it was well yeah ralph asked if we could live in the country my friends at that stage were moving out and buying homes and he suggested, why don't we go and buy something in the country? And at that stage, I thought I loved my job. At that, at that point, I was at Banyul City Council, working as a Cities for Climate Change education officer. Really loved that job. Really loved my life in Melbourne still. And I couldn't see myself changing at that point. And so... I suggested that we hold off, knowing that if we could afford, if we could manage to buy something in Melbourne, it would we would be able to sell it and buy almost anything in the country because because of the nature of Melbourne and the housing value of, of, of property. So we we bought we we made a really wise decision at no stage did i i let go of the fact that all the places that i would have loved living at i would have loved living in westgarth i would have loved living in north fitzroy <laughs> even preston which is so beautiful but i just closed my eyes to all those delicious suburbs and went out to reservoir and reservoir you were so kind to us but at the time when we first moved there i was like no where am i it was cross <laughs> The Bell Street, what this gigantic sea of Bell Street with six lanes. And also it meant a further riding distance from where my community was. But but we bit the bullet, bought a tiny little commission house in Reservoir that we, was completely within our means. But also to do that, I have to acknowledge my parents. The reason why we even managed to buy anything at all in Melbourne was because of a gift, a very sizable gift from my parents for a deposit for a house. Mm-hmm. And I I have to say that because, we're, again, where would things have been had we not been given that extraordinary gift? Mm. It's the opportunity to buy this incredibly humble home that, though, faced north. The living areas faced north to the sun. It had a, both a front yard and a backyard. And from there, we spent 10 years renovating our house and slowly, incrementally, every time we had an extra 100 or $200, we'd rip out a window and replace it with a double glazed unit. And we progressively, incrementally went through that process so that by the 13th year, we had created this very, very comfortable, low carbon house. Mm, beautiful. In the 13th year, Ralph again said, can we move to the country? Perfect timing. Because by that stage, I'd been working in an office for 20 years and I'd reached the end, which was a bit intimidating when you reach the end of something, actually, because you go, oh, my gosh, what now? who am I now? I can't work in an office anymore, so what am I going to do? And then there was Ralph saying, what if we move to the country? Yes, brilliant. <laughs> the timing was right. The timing was right. And then uh, so we started looking and while we were looking, I started visualising. Who will I be? What will I do? Though, What will my job be in the country? And I had a great fear of nudity. And what I mean by this is I thought I felt like Melbourne had cloaked me in a rainbow of, of wonder. Because there are so, I've met so many people in Melbourne who were really skilled and talented musicians and singers and makers. And I, I thought, you know, if I move away from them, who, how, how, what can I contribute to my community? What, what do I have without my cloak, my multicolored cloak? What, 
what is what is left behind and I was a little bit afraid that I wasn't skilled enough to move to the country and then luckily everything luckily I, I you realize that you are okay and I moved here and 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 realized that I could continue practicing the things that I love, but just on a larger scale. Mm. So we this block of land. And so then we set out doing what we'd done on a very micro scale in reservoir, but on, on a larger scale. So instead of having five fruit trees, it became 42 fruit trees. Okay. Instead of one olive tree, it's become 50 olive trees. Instead of revegetating just a small section of our nature strip, it was putting in a wetland and aquatic plants and this huge space for biodiversity and habitat. Um, instead of planting three banksias on, on the, near the footpath, it was planting 1,200 trees on the perimeter of our properties. Uh, it's, yeah, so it's been this gradual extension of everything we love and how many years have you been there fifth year fifth year wow so you've done all that in five years we built the block of land when i was pregnant with artemisia we sat on it so that was artemisia's eight now so we've had the block of land for eight years we sat on it for two years lost our permission to to build on it uh, lost our planning permit mm. All these things to do with that that at one point um we thought we couldn't build on it any longer as a result of a fraudulent section 32 mm-hmm. <laughs> um employed a planner she got us through and and then we started building about six months after that we and the first project was the wetland so yes yeah, so and then we moved here we moved into the house that i'm in right now when it was at uh almost that lock-up stage, yeah, four, four and a half to five years ago. Mm. So doing planting all those trees and all the work that you've done on your property, like that sounds like a lot of work. How, how have you sort of managed to get all of that done in that short space of time? It's my full-time job. I did do some part-time work when I first moved here to also to just keep my spirits up because initially there wasn't that much I could do. At the very beginning, we were just living in a little, in, in our farm stay, which hadn't been completed yet and had no kitchen or anything. So I felt so disempowered. In fact, I need you to know the first six months I was so depressed because I had, I, I didn't know what I could do and I don't like building myself. I have to say mm-hmm. I'm, building at all without my kitchen I felt really lost so all I could do is think of I can't wait till it's bedtime so I can sleep this sadness off or this this sort of disempowerment off really but then as soon as I had even the tiniest kitchen (laughs) it's so funny the things that anchor you the things that allow you to feel like you've got your feet grounded and for me the kitchen very much was that so once that um took shape I then then was able to spend all my spare time uh, just doing all the work I love I really love planting trees I my dad loves it too actually he did the same thing on his 13 acres so I joined the land care group thanks to them I get trees for free as well not all my trees but a lot of them I've been able to access for free and and volunteers they have Mm -hmm. been in they are just um They've helped a lot. So even just a couple of days ago, we planted 20 
um, what was it, 20 wallaby grasses. Had I done that on my own, it would have taken me yeah, so much longer because uh, one of us is digging, mulching, the other one is planting and tree guarding. And all of a sudden the job's done in half the time. So the volunteers have been instrumental to the success of this space. Mm. So they come and live with you and learn from you and help you and share that whole experience with you, do they? Very, very much so. And I've become better at communicating who we are, what we do, what we need in order to really be the right match for for the right volunteer. Mm, Yeah. So getting back to where we're at at the moment and all these people, you know, people are wanting to be more self-sufficient. They're wanting to grow their own food and um, make food from scratch. And I guess a lot of people find difficult finding the time and some people feel living where they do it's you know they don't have a big country property to do it in but you you were doing a lot of this in Melbourne so yeah do you feel like it doesn't really matter where you live is it possible to do the same thing in a smaller space I think it is I think there is a couple of factors that can make it possible. One is I think you do need to have, if you've, if you've got two partners who are working full time, it's, it's much harder. There, there just literally isn't the time to do it. So I, I think for me, I've always worked part time. I've always worked on a very low income. So I, I got used to a lifestyle that was a very low income lifestyle and that freed me up to have more time to do the things that I loved. So I think I, I, the most I've worked four days a week, and that was for about six months, but I've always worked mostly three days and two days a week. And then my partner, Ralph, um, he was working full-time more so. So that combination of his full-time job and my part-time paid work meant that I had the time to do those the, the horticultural part of our lives, the growing part of our lives. And and the other comp so one is time, the other one is developing the skills to do it. And there's a range of skills. One is a little bit of the know-how DIY technical skills that you need. And that if you don't have it, start small and build up. And that's definitely something that Ralph did. He started woodwork in year 10 um, at high school. And from that has gone on to build our house. So he literally started building. The first thing he ever did with wood was building a, um, a jig, um, like a chessboard and then worked his way up from that to making our first table for our house and then our first cabinet. And then he built me a solar uh, PV run uh, darkroom. And it just went on and on and on until his school's become so good that I can say, can I please have this? And bang, it's done. Uh, but that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's over 20 years work. So incremental work. So one is time, one is skilling up. The other one is the skill to network. It's the skill to, to be brave, to knock on people's doors and to say hello and then to introduce yourself and to barter and to say, wow, I just noticed you've got a, a tree full of lemons. Um, would it be possible for me to swap lemons with you for something else? Or they might say, what lemon tree? I didn't even know we had a lemon tree before you know it. They say, take them all, because that's often the case in urban environments where people have fruit trees, but they might be renting or the trees have always been there and they don't use them at all. Um, And that was definitely the case. I always found lots of quince trees in Melbourne. There are always apple and lemon trees, plums. Um, They were some of the 
common fruit. So, and then wild edibles are so exciting along the Mary Creek. I, I, I'm very Melbourne focused, of course, in this interview because that's the area I know. I know. But there's so many wild edibles along the Mary Creek there um, that, that can be harvested and used. So, and then disused land. Even if you don't have a big backyard, there's either disused land. If you've, got, if you've given yourself the time, then you can start approaching uh, government authorities or, or private landowners or a whole range of people to say, I see it's been disused for a whole year. How would you feel about me starting a vegetable garden there? There's community gardens. The possibilities are endless. There's so mm. many areas in the city that can be used for growing food. And then, of course, the beauty, the absolute beauty of permaculture is it allows you to put a new set of eyes on. You put on these eyes that every wall in your house, external wall, is a place for a climbing plant. Every bit of grass could be turned over into a small vegetable plot. Your nature strip becomes a growing space. The, the driveway that is for this is a concrete driveway can be uh, you know, broken up, which is one of the first projects I did at our reservoir house was I committed to parking our car on the road uh, and turning our driveway into a growing area. Mm. For some people, that would be a no way. But all of a sudden, you enter the permaculture world and you give value to something else. And all of a sudden, that driveway has no value as a driveway, but it has enormous value as a growing space. So mm. I'm, on my bike, cycling is so great as well in urban areas because you're at a speed where you can look side to side, mm. side to side, and you're constantly coming across opportunities for harvesting. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think, I mean, in some ways there are so many, there are almost more opportunities in the city to live like this than there are sometimes where we're more distant from one another. And yeah, like you say, when you're riding the bike, you notice what, you know, you ride down the back alley and the lemon trees hanging over the back fence and yeah, it's all right there. And that, absolutely. And that brings me to one, one of the big downsides of living on country uh, away from town. We've got a freeway between us and Dalesford and it's also very, very hilly freeway. So I stopped cycling. I only do a little bit of cycling. Um, and so actually my cardiovascular health has declined. <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, no, that's not fair. And also the muscle, even though it's, I mean, even though I'm doing tree planting, I'm doing quite a bit of physical work. It doesn't compare to the ongoing day-to-day -day commuting I used to do on my bike. Mm. So just recently I've decided I'm going to put an electric motor on my bike. And at the very least, I should be taking my girls on the bike to the bus stop. So mm. if I can do that five times a week, which is four rides a day, to go there and pick them up and drop them off. Oh my gosh, my body's going to be as luscious as it always was. <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, no, it sounds very similar. I was in a similar boat living in Melbourne and cycling everywhere. And yeah, you do find when you move to the country that that's, and I'm not too far from town, but yeah, it is enough sometimes to just, it's, you tend to be more car based, don't you? And also I think when your kids get older, I mean, my kids, if I said, we're all going to town on my bike and I'm going to dink you. They might not be. Oh yeah. If they had their own bikes, but yeah, it just becomes another sort of. It, it, um, does. it does indeed. I, my daughter really, really like this week I had the car at the mechanic. So I didn't have it for three days. 
and for me it was like fantastic absolutely have to cycle now to the bus stop yeah and but yes my teen daughter who is now fallen into that complete teen category you know when are we getting the car back when's the car coming back mum? it's just like come on just enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> so how how involved are your children in your in the work you do and growing food and preparing food i think that they understand it and they value it they contribute if i pester them um they but they are, are pretty i but i think i need to give them the the space to to be who they are at this point in their lives and to come back to to this life for themselves um yeah. so they they you know, when Alia started school, my oldest daughter, who's 16 now, when she started school, she goes to a very mainstream school. And so it, I noticed within the first week that she was, um, she said to me, mom, I don't want to have sourdough bread anymore. I want you to please get me just sliced bread. And she, like her lunch, exactly the same situation. <laughs> I had stainless steel lunch boxes because I really don't like using plastic, but all of a sudden I just, like I lost a lot of, um, by the, yeah, by the time my daughter went to high school, I lost a lot of, of ability and I don't know what other word I can use except the word control, <laughs> a lot yes. of control over those factors where I would just end up, if I didn't let go, it would just create this horrible distress for Alia who was mm -hmm. so who's very confident, by the way. So I'm thinking if she's really confident as a child and has a lot of self-love and we have got a really good relationship, but within the first week of school, she wants to get rid of her lunchbox. She wants her skirt to be twice as short and <laughs> she wants none of my bread. I just have to big cry because I thought, I thought it would take years for that to happen. And then I let go. My partner's a little bit less, like less inclined to, to stay anyway he was much more supportive of the girls going mara just you know chill and um you know what so it's exactly the same in my house exactly you are just speaking the exact situation and i know what you mean and the thing is i i think you and i and any of us who have taken the permaculture um, cloak then it feels like we're being hypocrites if we're not doing much as we can if we're not if we're so for me I said to Ralph it's really uncomfortable for me someone comes to visit me and they see I've got bread from the supermarket do I end up saying oh oh but that's because my daughter you know blah 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 blah, yeah. blah, blah. <laughs> like, do I do that each time I can't do it and yet I have to I have to let my daughter uh I can't impose this on my daughter no. or I will lose her because yeah. this is examples you know fidget spinners came into school and everyone had them. and I said but Alia honestly you'll have it for a week and then by the end of the week it's landfill that's what these things are they're landfill products she understood she accepted her friends who are gorgeous bought her one because I wouldn't buy her one yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, I'll win. but also what has it meant five years later Alia's back onto sourdough bread so yeah. one day I and Artemisia, I spoke to her teacher to, I asked her teacher, if she could have a big talk to the class saying, everyone's different. Everyone's diverse. I want my class to be diverse. I don't want you to be all the same because I noticed Artemisia was going through the same pattern where she was starting to go, Oh, my bread doesn't look like everybody else's bread. So, oh, it's yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a real process. Like for me, it's been a real process to be okay with that. Like you say, like, 
I just, all these things I believe in and the way I choose to live, suddenly, yeah, I'm buying sliced bread in plastic and, ugh, you know, and I'm doing, um, you know, buying all sorts of things that I wouldn't want to and plastic things and, um, you know, we still struggle. We have struggles. I, you know, I take them, they want to get this thing for their hair or something. And yeah. And it's like, they need to live their own life. I mean, they're still young, but they, they're, they're their own people and they've got their own desires. And yeah, I think if you try and force your ideals and beliefs, which, you know, I didn't have when I was a teenager, you know, yeah. I've grown into them. So to expect them to have it now, I think, yeah, is hard. And I think, they, those, the way that we live our lives, they see that and they um, observe it and they, you know, they experience it. And if, you know, later on in life, they may well come back to it and, and say, yep, yeah, that's a good thing. Or they may incorporate some aspects of it and they, or they might completely rebel <laughs> and yeah. do the opposite. But I just, yeah, it's some, and yeah, the word controls, <laughs> it's, it's like you just have to let go and you, you don't you don't have full control over them. They're humans who have their own tastes. And yeah, like you say, if they're going to a mainstream school where not everyone's, you know, having sourdough bread and honeybee wraps and you know, <laughs> homemade food, then they do want to fit in. And I think it's important to support them in that. And yeah, we have to learn how to sit with that uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> yeah words really sit with that uncomfortableness and it reminds us a little bit like a George Monbiot's book that I read um, he was talking about how again re-emphasizing the importance that how much we're all looking well how much many of us are looking forward to the mainstream being the sustainable yeah. where it's really hard not to mm. where comes the other way oh but mum um you haven't given me a bee wrap yeah or you ha why aren't you making sourdough bread with a precious the other pressure yeah, yeah. a lot of us who are involved in the permaculture movement are going oh i can't wait for that to happen mm. <laughs> it's not so where we're not where this movement this lifestyle is not so alternative but it's the mainstream yeah 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 no it's an interesting process so um yeah so you have your home open you have a homestay there yes people um, can come and experience live yes yeah, so the homestay is um so yes the farm stay is uh, through uh, the airbnb platform at this stage and it's been it's been great i actually can't believe how successful it is because there are so many people doing airbnb i thought well we'll just be another one how is anyone going to find us but literally the moment i put us up we got a booking straight away and it's been booked single weekend up until COVID where I shut it down and at the moment I'm actually doing it only on requests and I'm leaving three week gaps between visitors to try and protect us and to try and protect visitors so mm. it's a real slowing down I but what an opportunity to share our place um, we've definitely created this place to share it so every time I have guests I give them a tour of the property I take them to the berry orchard to Ortho 1, Ortho 2 
to the fruit orchard. I show them the wetland and I talk about why we've designed our property the way we have. I take them to the greenhouse, which is attached to our house, north facing, to show them how valuable that room is for drying our clothes, for acting as a passive heater and for propagating plants. And I, yeah, it's an opportunity to have a, a quite an, an intimate chat with our guests as well. And then on top of that, I'm running the classes, which I started last year. I put on hold and I'm not sure when I'm going to start back, but I do those about once a month, but then I take the winter months as a break. Mm. I was really nervous about starting those classes. I was always, are we ready yet? Have we got enough to offer? Is this place beautiful enough? Um, lots of those questions, waiting, waiting, learning to be patient because for the first couple of years, I, I knew that some people were wondering if I was ever going to do it, but I kept looking at our place and going, I'm not expecting it to be perfect, but it does have to be at some sort of level before we start opening it up to the public. Mm -hmm. So, And then when that level was reached, then it became easy to open it up. I didn't have to have self-doubt because we'd reached a point where it felt like there was enough to share with mm -hmm. people. Yeah, and people get a taste of what that your life is like and what it is like to live more connected to the land. And so that connection yeah. to the land, like by working and growing your food, and how how has that um, strengthened that connection to nature for you? Hugely, 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 hugely. I mean, I, I, the seasons completely affect the timing of everything I do at the moment it's very wet which is fantastic it's really hard to get in the garden at the moment because I destroy my soil if I step into it too much I so I'm constantly having to work around which beds I can work in and which beds I have to leave when do I harvest when do I propagate when do I take cuttings it's all weather dependent uh, depending on how sunny or hot it is uh, how many plants I've got in the greenhouse how many I've taken out because the wind has subsided what's happening in the wetland the wetland is very special because the wetland lush lush green summer and now at this time of the year it's bronze and copper and reds and i hadn't realized that before the the autumnal change that happens with aquatic plants the birds the frogs the birds that come at this time of year but don't come during the peak of summer um partalotes and blue wrens and down by the wetland in spring we get the pobblegong frogs and then at other times we don't get them the greenhouse was full of frogs as the cool change started happening all of a sudden they made a lot of them made their way into our greenhouse and now that it's very cold they've hidden and we only hear them at night but don't see them so much during the day the yeah when to prune trees again all weather dependent all seasons dependent mm. mushrooms I've loved foraging for mushrooms. That's been very interesting and something I never did in the city. It didn't even occur to me that it was something that was possible. And then coming here and finding people who are really into foraging mushrooms has been fantastic. So then again, when has it rained? And then mushrooms grow really fast. That's within 24 to 48 hours, they will have sprung from the ground and completed their life cycle. So you've got to get out there and harvest and look for them before the rains dry up mm, yeah yeah it's a beautiful beautiful thing anyway there's so much i could talk to you about i'd love to talk to you about your home but we are, have, are actually talking about maybe doing an article about that in a future issue so we can share some more of your story 
over time in future issues. And But yeah, so thanks a lot for your time today. I know you have a lot on, a lot to do in the garden and around the house. So I appreciate that. You have been listening to The Pip Podcast with Robin Rosenfeld and Mara Rupani. To read more about Mara, check out the current issue of Pip Magazine number 17, which is out now. You can also read more of her work for free on our blog at pipmagazine.com.au, where you can also subscribe to the magazine and support our work.